We are off and running, I guess. Running might be a little enthusiastic for me. I should start out really... Oh, August the 5th, 2018, lecture discussion number 32 on the book of Joel. For the Internet audience, uh, I want you to know this is our Sunday school curriculum here at uh, Cliffside Community Chapel. Electromagnetism for babies. Nuclear physics for babies. Statistical physics for babies. This is, my, of course, my favorite. Quantum entanglement for babies. And organic chemistry for babies. Now, some in the audience, uh, the vast Internet audience, will assume that that is not for the babies. It is for the general congregation. And that may be closer to the truth than I want to admit. But I thought that was fantastic, as you might guess. You cannot start young enough, in my view. Uh, And that's absolutely the case. I think that's true. Bill the Fast and I both. Bill was a principal in school, as you know. I taught school for a long time. We would drive to work uh, together for years. How many years did we do that, Bill? We solved every single problem there ever was. It seems like 20, but we'll say whatever it is. But the point being is, is that we knew that if you gave us control of the school system in the United States, frankly, this will sound really arrogant, that we could fix it. Because what we would do is, is start with reading and math. And that's what we would do. You come out of the elementary school with a high proficiency in reading, a high proficiency in math, and then uh, nothing is, uh, you could be assailed by nothing. And I don't care where your sociological standing or what uh, conditions you may, may live in. My experience is if I can get you to read and, and do high-level mathematics, you're on your own, and you're on your own with a tremendous amount of, of power. Okay, let's start back over again. August the 5th, 2018, lecture discussion number 32 on the book of Joel. To recap the previous six Sundays, if that were possible, in a few sentences, and it is not possible, but if it were, this is what it would be, kind of. Sun and moon. So if you've been here for the last six or seven weeks, this would be the seventh uh, that I'm I'm on in this sense of what, what I'm trying to do this Section or uh, segment, time and light. Water and darkness. You may not think these are related. I'm trying to make you think that they are. Life and motion. Obviously, time and motion have a relationship, but I have moved motion next to light. Quantum, oh, learn to spell. Quantum Zeno effect. And the radiation continuum model. Uh, where am I? Angels are the angelic realm and the sign of Jonah. 
infinity and divisibility. Gravity, electromagnetic, energy, and a vacuum. And the last one is absolute observation and consciousness. I'm going to put absolute up here. I recognize that there's an individuality, absolute observation, and consciousness. Just to speed that up. And that last one, uh, it's uh, like I said, it's best to be said that absolute observation and absolute consciousness is the primal or the first consciousness, the origin, the, the original consciousness, the outside of time consciousness, if you will. Clearly, I am making a reference to the creator. We have descendant consciousnesses, if that's the word, or we have bestowed or conferred consciousness. We have bestowed or conferred uh, existence and free will. Our existence, our free will, our consciousness is dependent. And once you begin to understand uh, consciousness and existence and free will and all of that, the terms are almost interchangeable when everybody understands their complete meanings and the implications of those meanings. Okay, that is the summation the recap of where we've been the last six weeks. And hopefully some of those are, are at least familiar with your, your understanding the term in the sense that you've heard it, but you may not know how it all fits together. The plan, of course, is to get you to make the relationship so that you understand the value of it, I hope. Or I'm back to this book over here. Where is it? Right here. This is my attempt to do that. Okay, it's frequently, I'm asked frequently by many, where is the radiation continuum model in the book of Joel? And that's an excellent question. And actually, it isn't really asked or phrased that way. You all say, duh, of course not. But it is what they ask me. They just don't really know that it is what they ask me. And and I would tell them, and I do tell them, those that have asked me that question, You'll find it when you understand what the radiation continuum model is, as opposed to the Einstein general relativity model, for example. Once you begin to understand what the terms mean, you will find it in the book of Joel. That is absolutely the case, and I can't wait for you to do it. In other words, they would have asked it that way if they had more time to develop the question and knew knew what the actual issues is. The answer to that, and let me put this on the board too, is the radiation continuum model is in Joel, absolutely, and it is at 2, 2, 2, 10, 2, 31, 3, 15, and 3, 18. And that's where you find it. It's also at Ezekiel uh, 47.1 and make sure and Genesis, of course, 1, 2. 
And obviously, Joel 2, 2, 2, 10, 2, 31, 3, 15, and 3, 18 are references when you read them. I hope you're reading them now. They're references to the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's what they are. Joel 2, 31 through 32 says this, as you know, I hope you know it. It's a very valuable verse for you to know. The day that whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ... I'm sorry, in that day, whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's Joel 2.32 and Romans 10.13. So there's going to come a day that whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. Now, what makes that day different from any other day in the sense that whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ is saved on any day? But it says on that day. Whosoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. The question becomes, what's so special about that day? Because it is. It is a day. How many are saved on that day is probably the first thing you should be concerned with. How many will be saved on this very last day? And yes, I know there is a Peter, Paul, and Mary song. Very last day. Everybody's going to pray on the very last day when they ring that bell. Look it up on your phone. That dates me, doesn't it? How old is Peter? Are any of them still alive? I don't know. I might have outlasted them. So I'm old. I just proved it. I'm guessing what? Late 1960s? Joel is talking about the very last day. Everybody's going to pray on the very last day. I think that's true. Some are going to pray to Christ. Some are not. There's another person that said you've got to serve somebody of that same era. Um, everyone's going to pray on the very last day. There will be no atheists. There will be no evolutionists. There will be no agnostics. None of those will exist on that day. Anyway. Though Joel speaks of the very last day, you can't mistake, in my opinion, that he is citing Genesis 1-2 through Genesis 1-23. So when you read Joel, you will notice that he is constantly referring back to Genesis 1-2 through 1-23. That, I believe, is correct. And that, of course, as you know, the earth is in this darkness state. The waters cover the earth, so you have water and darkness. Here you go, put together at Genesis 1-2. So why are water and darkness together? It, it isn't, do you ever ask the world is in darkness, why is it covered in water? Why not just be fine? No water. There's a reason it's covered in water and there's a reason it's covered in darkness. What is the reason? Did God create it that way? Did he say, I'm going to start out with the world covered in darkness and water? Why not just start out with the world covered in darkness? Why not just start out with the world covered in water? Why this order that is here? Does the order have meaning? Absolutely it does. So the earth is in darkness and the waters cover the earth and the waters are now divided. I'm quoting, I'm getting, giving you a Reader's Digest version of 1-2 and 1-2 through 123. The waters are divided. What does that mean? The sun and moon are established. The stars are placed. And then the waters, as you know, you all have, I'm certainly... Uh, read it and been familiar with it. What happens next is the waters abound with living souls, great sea creatures. And every living thing which moves, which is in motion. So he says that there's now movement and motion. There's this 
He speaks it into existence. Birds are spoken into existence also, and they fly above the earth. So keep in mind, who's watching that? Who's the audience? How many billions of beings are watching this happen? And what do they think while they're watching it happen? Do they think, oh, well, this is interesting, or do they think that it has direct application to them? I think it is obvious that it has direct application to them, and I think that they knew that. So who sees this? Who's watching? Why are they watching? What are they thinking? So the darkness, the gloominess that was over the earth, the covering of the waters, is now starting to end, ebb, if you will. The gloominess is ended somewhat. So is the darkness, the covering waters are converted into full rivers and fountains, and life abounds. That's Genesis 1-2 through 1-23. What did the angelic realm conclude when they saw that? They are watching sea creatures and flying wing things. Have they seen anything like that before? Chime in. Yeah, they have. They certainly saw bird-looking things, haven't they? Have they seen anything that flew? Absolutely. Look at the cherubim. So flying was not mysterious, certainly. How about the great sea creatures? Is that new? Water, is that new? Had they seen water before? But how about great sea creatures? The words of Genesis 1.20 through 1.21 literally are living souls. These are living beings with the capacity to multiply. Had the angelic host seen anything like this before? Again, how smart are the angelic host? How much intelligence do we have here? Greater than you? Me? How quick do they understand things and put pieces together? So I have living beings with the capacity to pro, the ability to procreate. I submit this becomes central because of its potential to be manipulated. I believe this becomes a very, very important piece of information. Does God know that uh, this procreation element is going to draw the attention of the angelic host. Well, of course he does. He's outside of time, and he's omniscient. If the angels could not reproduce, and I think it's obvious that they cannot reproduce. In other words, their numerical values are fixed. Unfallen, fallen. Unfallen gets one-third now. Fallen is two-thirds. Why is it that angels cannot multiply? What's the reason? Because if I'm right, I don't know why I asked that. I mean, it seems insulting, I guess. But if I'm right and they can't multiply, why not? Why did he create beings that cannot multiply? Would the beings that cannot multiply notice immediately that there are beings being created subsequent to them that, that, that can multiply? Would they pay attention to that? Would they notice the differences? Would they look for similarities? Would they look for differences? What would they notice first? Apply just basic reasoning and logic to it. If the angels cannot multiply, why not? 
Why is their, their numerical number, their number, I'm sorry, that's redundancy. Why is it that they are fixed numerically? Also, the freedoms given to the birds and the great sea creatures would have immediately been evaluated. So here we are now at absolute observation and consciousness. A consciousness, of course, includes underneath it or with it simultaneously, intrinsically, inherently. Consciousness, free will, and existence are all the same term. So the, do angels have consciousness? Do they have free will? Do they have existence? Yes, they do. How much do they know? What would they do? They would see flying birds and great sea creatures that can multiply, and they begin to notice these kinds of similarities and differences. How much freedom? I imagine the discussions. I imagine the, they convene committees. How long, much time do they have to watch all of this? How long did it take? Did, take, did he create in the darkness? Defend that logically. Did God create in the darkness? Did he create in the day? In the light? Now, again, he provides the non-particle or the spiritual light. He calls himself the primeval spiritual light. I have spiritual light, I have particle light. The physicists in those books don't like that. That's okay. My job is to build a case. So, how much time for the committees to meet after everything God did before he did something else? It's almost like he stops to allow them to sit down and chew on it. Do angels, uh, do they have alarm clocks and beds and they sleep at night? You know, I mean, how's it work? They got radios, they got trumpets. We know they have trumpets. Trumpets are the most holy of all things. Sort of. I just have to say this. I don't believe that there's a bagpipe in heaven. I just, I just can't think that's possible. I just don't see it happening. Why would he do that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. He'd just take the bagpipe people. What would be the first thing he would do? I mean, he's God. He's omniscient. The first thing he'd do is he'd hand him a trumpet. I mean, that's what he would do. Here, this sounds really good, he would say. I, I'm just guessing, obviously, extrapolating. I might not be correct on that. Anyway, my point being is, is that, oh, yay, a point. I think that they had time enough and they began to talk amongst themselves, if you will. How could they not? They're watching something absolutely incredible. What did they think? Did they ask the question about the birds and the great sea creatures? Because they had not seen the beasts. Of, they hadn't seen the land animals yet. And they had not seen the man yet. And so here they are asking this question. How much individuality did the, do these animals have? How much intelligence is here? How about their communication capabilities? How much free will do these next generation living beings possess? I'm sure those questions were asked. Go ahead and run off to when they see Adam. What do they think Adam is? Do they think he's inferior or superior to them? And if they think that he is superior to them, why do they think that? 
And it would be, in my opinion, the foremost concern that they would want to know about free will. Why? Why do they want to know about free will? Because ultimately that is the lie of Satan. And the comparisons would naturally, in my opinion, also be the initial subject, if not the predominant subject. I think predominant would be also logical and obvious. And God calls the sea creatures, he calls them great. What does that mean? The sea creatures are great. And and most interpreted how? Go ahead, join in, participate. You and the Internet, what do you think great means? Guy in Cincinnati. Hi, Joni. Lady in Cincinnati. Uh, Everybody shouts out large. They're large. And I think that's a relative perspective. It's a relative term, obviously. Uh, You've got to ask how big is big now. And I suspect that though great can be assigned to mass, and it, and, and, and it can. I'm not going to argue that it, it, there's certainly a position that we're talking about the mass of the animal here. I believe that God's thoughts are not simple, and we are, we are those that love the simple, not him. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God has omniscient language. He therefore knows the journeys of his words. God had just made the great lights. He called them great lights, Genesis 1.16. What makes the lights great? Is it their size that makes them great? When God uses the word great, does he mean size? Does he, is that a numerical value? Is that a square area? Is that cubic area? What is it? He says they are great sea living beings. That's the literal in Genesis 1.22. Great See living beings. Great is in the first time it's mentioned. The first mention of great is the two great lights. The second time it is mentioned is with these great sea living beings. Genesis 1.21. That's the second. And I propose that this is not unintended. That's just duh, right? And, and it can't be that God just can't come up with another word besides great. He's just got a limited vocabulary. He just repeats the same words. He means he just doesn't have a thesaurus yet. That can't be true, and you know that. He also calls these creatures blessed and good. What does blessed mean to God when God says blessed? If God called me blessed, you might immediately think attractive. I don't think that's the case. Obviously. (laughs) What does blessed mean to God? You don't have to answer, but you know where I'm going, don't you? When God declares a living being blessed, why is he saying that? What does it mean to be blessed if you're a living being? These are good, blessed, great Beings, living souls. And keep that in mind when you attempt to define great as God himself defines great. Now, we have covered all of this many times over the years. And, and I recognize this is uh, repeating for a great many of you. My point today, yay, another point, is to compare Joel to Genesis. And specifically, I want to talk, talk about this darkness, this gloom, this chaos. You, you see that the darkness of Genesis 1-2 is not ended, is it? Remember we discussed that? He doesn't end the darkness. What does he do to the darkness? He attenuates it. He divides it. He separates it from the light. And he, of course, is himself the light, the primeval light, the spiritual, the non-particle light. 
is anybody expecting the ending of the darkness? Because it didn't happen. Here he comes. He starts his creative um, process. Does he end the darkness? No. Does he get rid of the water? No. He moves the darkness, if you will, to one side temporarily, divides it. When does he start the rotation of the earth? We asked that question a while back. Darkness does not end until after the lake of fire in the Bible. That's when it ends, if you want to know. He doesn't end it here. He waits until Revelation 20, 13 through 15. When the lake of fire is filled with those who choose evil, that is when God begins ending darkness. But he doesn't do it here at Genesis 1, 2. Why not? Reminds you of the frogs, doesn't it? The Pharaoh is covered in frogs. Moses says, I'll end the frogs. Get rid of the frogs. And Pharaoh says, no, give me a couple more days with the frogs. Actually, one more day. Here comes. I've got gloom, darkness, covered in water, chaos, formless and void. And he doesn't end it. In the sense, the darkness is still there. Revelation 21.1 ends the sea. The covering of the earth by water, Genesis 9.11, shall never happen again. There will never be a covering flood. Revelation 21.1 ends all sea completely. Genesis 9.11 just locates the sea and brings land masses back up. It's very similar to um, Genesis one um, 2 through 23. In other words, the land reforms, uh, if you will, it resurfaces in Genesis 9:11, and we have what we have today. What do we have today? We have three quarters of the earth covered by water. In Genesis, <coughs> I'm sorry, in Revelation 21:1, that is not the case. It's not how it works. The earth will not have a three-quarter water-dominated environment. Twice. Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 7-24, the waters have prevailed on the earth. And he says, I will never do that again. I will not cover the earth with water again. Well, if the earth is not going to be anywhere near like it is now, water from a water... uh, From evaluating it from a water percentage... Then what's the, what's the rivers and the fountains be like? What's, what's going to happen? Contemplate, if you will, the structural system for these great living sea beings that are blessed. Look at how he fixes it versus the transition to fixing it. And why is there a transition? So all of that, get back to me later, test on Friday. I hope that made some sense to you. Uh, one other thing, in Revelation 21.5, the darkness is also finally ended. There is only light. So what is the source of darkness? Why isn't it ended? Uh, when is it ended the way it is ended? And why is that the time that it ends? And once again, uh, it's for us to reconcile all of that information. And ultimately, it is optimal to construct an explanation that addresses and utilizes the most components within a cohesive framework. In other words, assemble your edifice carefully without omitting anything, any key crucial elements. For example, if, if you're pouring foundations without rebar, uh, if you're using sand instead of concrete, 
If you have no glue lamp beams, no plywood, no sheathing, no framing studs, no nails, no fasteners, just to name a few of of the things you need. If you're attempting to build a position without the crucial elements, the essential elements, house fall down, go boom. And so think that through. That's a tower, right? Give you an example. Christ is the great Sabbath rest. What's he resting from? Fit that into your tower. Why is he resting? What's the point of this of the rest? Okay. That just gets you to where we were. Now we'll move along if that is possible. It's a little Zeno paradox, infinite disability of time joke there. Note the congregation burst and erupted into laughter. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody did. That's okay. People are now pretending it's, it's really a sympathetic laugh. And uh, I still appreciate it. I need a laugh track. I need an applause track. I really do. I mean, how long can I fool these people, you ask? Well, so far, so good, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So what's up next? The radiation continuum model or the special relativity model. So that's your choices. Radiation continuum or special relativity. That's not really true. Uh, Contain your enthusiasm. But uh, I'm going to take a run at it again today. Quantum entanglement uh, for church congregations. That's what we're doing again. Now, why? Why? Hopefully that makes sense. I'm not going to belabor, eventually, the, the subject today. I'll save that for a later date when I, I, I think you're really close to getting it. I'm just going to give a, a, a bit, small, tiny bites. That's my new stratagem. Okay, it's my old st- stratagem. Think eating tiny pieces of liver. There you are. Or lima beans. Two lima beans. That's what I'm going to do today. Uh, one half of a crawfish. Are crawfish, um, are they just giant cockroaches? I want to know. I think so. I think I'm right about that. Anyway, here we go. Again, suppress your enthusiasm. Both Einstein and Neil deGrasse Tyson, remember him? Both insist that the speed of light is constant from all frames of reference. Now, I've had a bunch of you ask me, how is it that if I'm traveling on a rocket ship and I shine a light out the nose of the rocket ship, that the velocity of the rocket ship does not add, it's not additive to the speed of light? Because you think that that is logical. Neil deGrasse Tyson and Einstein say the speed of light is constant from all frames of reference, also known as the invariance of the speed of light. And hopefully someone present, and I'll be thrilled if it's just one of you, remembers a long time ago now our little foray into interferometry. Does anybody remember interferometry? Don't raise your hands here. Yes, mirrors and splitting photons and light beams and waves and particles and all of that. Morley-Michelson is what that's called. Interferometry experience have demonstrated that light 
has an apparent constant velocity. Notice how I said that. And that apparent constant velocity is independent of any and all frames of reference, which is observation. All of us observe from our own frame of reference. For example, is the beloved Worcestershire sauce and Coke can, is anyone in the auditorium looking at these two magnificent products made by manufacturers who ought to send me some kind of compensation for my efforts? Does anybody in this congregation think that those are moving? Well, you think they're spinning through the universe. But from your reference now, do you see them as moving? No, you see them as stationary. Somebody is, is somebody else think they're moving that is not in this room. If I start to run, okay, by them, this is what I call running now. If I start to run, I may give myself the illusion that they are moving this direction from me. Somebody in a car driving by might think that they are moving because their car is moving. Someone flying in a plane might assume that they're moving. In other words, the frame of reference will determine whether or not this is a stationary item. Every one of us has a frame of reference. Every one of us has an, in, that's an individual frame of reference and it is an individual consciousness. That means that it's an individual free will and you have an individual existence. Your existence is not um, is not a, a community existence. It's an individual one. So, interferometry demonstrated that light has an apparent constant velocity independent of any and all frames of reference. So no matter what you're doing, you're in a car, you're in a spaceship, you're in a plane, you're on a different planet, you're, you're moving at a different rate of speed, you're on a, a go-kart, Light will be the same velocity independent of your motion, of your frame of reference, your location, and whether or not you are stationary or moving. And remember, everyone can assume that they are stationary. And Neil deGrasse Tyson has taken these findings that it, and extended the apparent constant velocity to an absolute constant velocity. Does that make sense? Try it again. Morley Michelson, interferometry experiments have demonstrated that light apparently has a constant velocity. That's what they have ultimately decided. And that apparent constant velocity is, is independent no matter who looks at it, no matter what that person is doing. Uh, motion, stationary, uh, it has no impact. But... And it wasn't Neil deGrasse Tyson. It was Einstein and Minkowski. Einstein looked at Morley Michelson and said, light does not have an apparent velocity. Light has an absolute velocity. So he raised it a full level. Neil deGrasse Tyson did not do that. Neil deGrasse Tyson believes that. But he is not the author of the thought. Don't tell Neil, though. Because if you run into Neil on a park bench in Texas, these kind of discussions create angst for him. They are upsetting. So, shh, just, you know, shake his hand and ask him for a donation. 
That's what church people do, right? Anyway, I digress. Einstein arbitrarily decided that what was possible, what was ostensible, was now inviolable. Do you see that? He said it is not a seeming constant velocity. It is an inviolable constant velocity. It is unvariant, and it is called the unvariance of the speed of light. And he established that uh, light was one constant velocity at all times in a vacuum. Nothing could exceed the speed of light, not even light. Now, what I said there is significantly uh, controversial. And when Einstein did this, it caused significant mathematical problems, primarily with Newton's law of conservation of energy. I hear a train running or something. What is it? Pressure cooker? Does anybody know who put the pressure cooker in? Okay, just curious. You know, you've got to be concerned about pressure cookers nowadays. Huh? Okay. Is it, Caleb, of course, has found the pressure cooker. Is that a problem? No, he's just running amok in the foyer, so everything's fine. Where is the pressure cooker? In the foyer. Okay, well, maybe we need to shut the door so that it doesn't interfere. It's pretty loud. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Susie, for containing the, the one running amok. <laughs> See me later. <laughs> What's in the pressure cooker? Does anybody know? I, I heard a rumor there was Kentucky Fried Chicken coming today, but apparently not, and that's certainly disappointing. I think that needs to be communicated. Okay, where was I? Thank you very much for, for taking care of the problem, you guys. If the speed of light is supreme, then we have a problem with classical Newtonian physics. If nothing can exceed it, then an object that attains a velocity nearing the speed of light would demand a corresponding exponential increase in its mass and its energy. You will end up with infinite energy if light has this inviolable speed limit, if you will. And if that's true, the making of Star Trek and Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica now becomes untenable. You can't, the shows are ridiculous if Einstein is correct. And that causes universal despair in Nerdville, as you know. We can't have that. I'll explain the increase in mass and energy as a velocity nears the speed of light to you as time goes by. We never have that situation, so we use classical Newtonian physics as if it isn't true, but the physicists will tell you that it is. They have to tell you that because the speed of light cannot be reached by anything. And eventually, gravity, space, and time, uh, all of that had to be restructured and reconstrued and redefined to comply with this concept that Einstein and Minkowski have, that the speed of light is constant from all frames of reference. And we are at the point currently where any questions that of this is, anybody that questions it, for example, me, 
we are an abominable, abominable heresy or heretic. And heretic is screamed by the mob at uh, the questioners in this particular area of discussion. And that's quite the opposite of the scientific method, as you know. General relativity theory is approaching religion. Uh, as is anthropogenic uh, global warming or evolutionary philosophy and many, many others. And if you don't believe, you must believe, uh, if you don't believe, you're going to be punished and no dissent is considered. I don't know if you remember what DeGrasse Tyson said uh, in that conversation he had with Jim a while back. Um, you must believe this. Obviously, I'm curious as to the intense emotion that's attached to Einstein's theory. Why is this so? If you're emotional, I want to know why. Because emotion is not something that is um, dependable. That is why uh, you have to be take very much care when you are being manipulated emotionally. So why is this much intensity assigned, uh, connected to Einstein's theory? Why do they love it so? Why the raging if the position is attacked? Because is, that leads me to think the position is not sound. You're not using rationality. You have fear. Why do you have fear? As you know, methinks thou doth protest too much applies here. So let's just dip a toe into the water. Just a toe, the little tiny toe. See if we perish when we come into special relativity or general relativity. I'm going to quote somebody named Renshaw. Uh, you need to know who he is. The model of light proposed by Einstein, though not necessarily completely wrong, is at best incomplete. What's ironic about that is Einstein literally used the same phrase when he talked about quantum entanglement or quantum theories. He said it's not completely wrong, but it's probably wrong. We'll have to figure it out. Renshaw takes that and twists it beautifully. The model of light proposed by Einstein, though not necessarily completely wrong, is at best incomplete. There's something missing. And I believe that has to be true because so many things have to be modified in order for this to fit. If I've got to tear down the truss system and pull the roof off and add beams in order to get your bathroom to work, Probably I've designed the bathroom in the house wrong. I shouldn't be able to do that with hardly any modification. When I've got to make my house look like a guitar to get a bathroom in it, then probably I've got a problem with my design. And that's what I see here. When I'm going to tear everything to pieces in order to accommodate the speed of light is constant, uh, then I want to know, is are we making an error? All of this is because of Sherry, as you know. Hi, Sherry. The element central to Einstein's theory, uh, the, the light is constant from all frames of reference, is mankind. Can you see that? That should immediately tell you that it might not be reliable. He is saying that from all observation frames of reference, that's human consciousness. That's what he's saying. From a human consciousness perspective, frame of reference, light is constant. Well, he's added humanity to it. I don't think you necessarily can rely on humanity. 
Man might believe, man might even observe that light is apparently at a constant velocity. But man observing that light is at a constant velocity, does that make it so? That's my first question. Just because it is uh, by observing such apparentness is not justification for the leap to absoluteness. As an aside here, apparentness and absoluteness are proof that adding the suffix ness to all words is cool and impressive. It is impressiveness. I leave it to you to confirm if apparentness, absoluteness, and impressiveness are actual words. Use your phones. Ready, set, go. Okay, where was I? Michelson and Morley confirmed that light had a seeming constant velocity independent from all frames of reference. Again, human consciousness. Again, so it seemed. Obvious question. It seems that way. Is it possible? Is it so? Is it possible that we puny humans are only able to see light at the velocity that we say light is? Does that make sense? Let me put it this way. I can watch the train go 100 miles an hour. If it goes 120 miles an hour, I can't see it. I can see it go 100 miles an hour, but I can't see it if it's 150. It's too fast for me to recognize. It's like radio antennas. You have a radio. Does anybody have a radio anymore? Okay, yay. You have an antenna. Signals hit the antenna. What does ha- happens to the antenna? It, it captures that signal. There's a heat energy element here, and it sends it into a decoding system, right? The technology that takes that those waveforms and converts them into audible sound. That's what your mind does when you see something. You see something, you have to convert that. Your, the photons of light go into your brain. It's, it's converted to electro electronic uh, magnetic energy as well as chemical energy, and something must evaluate it, read it, and turn it into intelligibility or intentionality. So I'm watching the speed of light or a train or a baseball or a bullet. Can I see a bullet? No, I can't see it. Because I can't see it, do I believe that it is traveling at the speed of light? No, I'm not. Do I know how fast it's going? I can't tell. I don't have the processing system to record it. Does that make any sense to anybody? I hope I'm getting it through. My point is, is it possible that the puny humans are only able to register light at a constant velocity? How do we, how do we mechanically test it? We have to have a mechanical device that's capable of testing the speed of light. In other words, is there a recording issue here and a medium issue in the sense that we can't reproduce the vacuum very easily? We'll get into how they have decided that the speed of light is the speed of light. We did that a little bit a while back in some sense, but we'll get it a little bit more. The question is, can you, is the human observation element being considered with the speed of light? And the answer is no, it's not. That's why Michelson and Morley said it appears that it is this fast or that it is this constant in in all frames of reference. But that doesn't mean the light is constant. It just means that we can only determine that there is a certain speed to light. 
We don't know what if there are other speeds to light. We only know this one speed. What if there's more speeds? The Bible tells you there's more speeds. Joel tells you there's more speed. Psalms tell you there's more speed. I'll get to it in a minute. Okay. Here's a question for fun. Can you tell if you're moving? The answer is maybe. How can you tell if you're moving? Well, if you observe something stationary, my can of soda and my beautiful, beloved Worcestershire sauce. Notice I don't open it. Why not? I don't want it defiled. And I'm afraid it might be the last bottle. <laughs> that would be. So it's precious. You can look at those and you, you can decide that they're not moving. And so you're not moving. You're looking at something stationary and... Uh, Maybe you can now tell that you're not moving. So all of that places is back on trains or inside of cars. You're, every time you study this subject, you're going to be on a train or in a car That's or in a rocket ship. That's how it's done. That's all the thought experiments seem to be able to do is cars, rocket ships, and trains. And we've all been stopped at a traffic light. You've been surrounded. There's a car in front of you. There's a car on each side. There's a car in back. And everybody is stationary. Every car is not moving. We know they're stationary. We watch them be stationary. We've decided they're stationary. We observe them as stationary. We have a rear view mirror. Every car is stopped according to our frame of reference, including us. And we're not moving. You've been there. So we conclude that our car is not moving. And we're happy in our certainty. And we're singing Very Last Day with Peter, Paul, and Mary on the radio from 1942 or whatever it is. But then what happens to you while you're oblivious, you're content that everything is stationary and everything, you're really fine. What happens to you? Simultaneously synchronized, the cars on each side of you slowly move perfect unison forward. What do you do? You stomp on the brake. Why do you do that? Because you're convinced you're going backwards, aren't you? Your stationary frame of reference starts to move, and so you think you're moving. You no longer have a stationary frame of reference. And now you're confused. You're convinced you're rolling backwards. We lost the ability, and those other cars moved without your permission, I should say, and you have lost your ability to judge your own stationary status. From last Sunday, I recovered from months ago the significance of a biblical truth. Psalm 104, 1 through 2, Isaiah 44, 24, Isaiah 45, 12, Isaiah 51, 13. Don't have time to put them on the board. God says that he is stretching out his universe. The Bible says, God says, I'm stretching out my universe. Says it all the time. And I, I wanted to make it as, as, Prominent as I could. Probably I didn't do a good job. This is crucial piece of information. The fact that it is declared in Scripture is astonishing. It's amazing. No one until our time actually understood what it meant 
For the first time, we're looking at Psalm 104, Isaiah 44, 24, 45, 12, 51, 13, and others, and realizing what he meant when he said, I am stretching out the universe. And what the implications are if he's doing that. How fast is he doing it? Is he accelerating the process? The Bible says that the universe is stretching out. That is unbelievable. Find me another book that says that. Good luck. Pack a lunch. Get a shovel. No one, again, really understood that, what it it was, what it meant, why it was there. Once again, God is lucky. He is so lucky for being omniscient outside of time. We know some things about trains. Okay, I know some things about trains, but you do too. If a train has a velocity of 60 miles an hour and collides with an oncoming train, uh, also traveling at 60 miles an hour, the effect is equal to a stationary train being struck by a moving train with a velocity of 120 miles an hour. Does you you follow me? Okay, if I hit it 60 at 60, that's the same as hitting stationary at 120. That's common sense. We know that the energy is additive. It's the same for cars. If you want to pass a car that's going 50 miles an hour, and you want to pass that car going by it at 20 miles an hour, hopefully that, that uh, computed so I've got a car that's going 50, and I'm behind him. When I pass him, I want to be going 20 miles an hour faster than him. So how fast do I have to go to do that? You do it all the time. I have to go 70 miles an hour. 50 plus 20. The math is simple. It's addition. Again, it's additive. It's obvious. That is not Einstein's theory of relativity. Einstein's relativity says light speed is constant. It's not additive. The velocity of the observer is immaterial. It's not germane. It's not considered. And Neil says you can't even question that. Even though logically, you go, what? Why not? Why isn't the observer not critical with respect to light speed? The observer is critical to quantum physics In everything, observation, they'll tell you there is no reality without observation, but not with light. I want to know why. Okay, enough of that for today. Finally, you'll all love finally. Jesus Christ allowed his body. You're going to go, what is he doing here? Does this fit on the list? The answer is yes. Is it your job to figure out where? Yes, that's the answer. Jesus Christ allowed his body, his perfect, sinless human body to be encased in burial spices. Does that make sense? Grave clothes. Does that make sense? Let me repeat it. Jesus Christ, who has a perfect, sinless human body, decided he's God, that he wanted these women and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to encase his body in grave clothes. That's what God wanted and did and decided to do. Why? Why did he want this? Why did he choose this? Why did he decide this? Why did he permit this, allow it? Would his uncorruptible, perfect, sinless human body decay? 
Yes or no? Would it rot? Yes or no? Where's Christopher? What happens to a dead body three days? How much bloat do I have? A lot of bloat. How much gas buildup do I have? Tremendous. Explosive. As you know, I was a contractor for the longest time. We got a call. Please come. Take care of this problem. We need you to completely repaint the house. And uh, an older gentleman, probably my age, uh, died in there. And it's essentially exploded. So we had to try to fix it. Never forgot it. Knowing that's going to happen to me. So I want to position myself in the most difficult place to extract me as possible and the most valuable place so that I could do the most damage so I'm the most memorable knowing that this is going to happen. You know, you don't want to do it in the bathtub. No. Bed. Destroy the bed. Destroy the best furniture. Come on. You're, you've got this fantastic opportunity. Anyway, I've been thinking about things like that as I approach the inevitable. Would his uncorruptible, perfect, sinless human body decay, rot, bloat? Would it? Yes or no? Obviously, no. So what is the purpose? What is the point of the burial spices in the grave clothes? Because they are prominent in the story, right? We got Good Friday is really good burial spice day. Why? What's he trying to tell you? And obviously, to figure this out, where do we have to go? That's right. We have to go evaluate Lazarus' resurrection and compare. That's John 11, 38 through 44. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Why four days? Now, they'll tell you, well, the, the Jews think the spirit uh, floats around the body for four days. Do you really think that makes sense? I'll grant it to you. It's kind of cool. We'll go with it. But how complex is that answer? Why did Christ wait four days? How? Yes, great could mean large mass or size, but it also extends. This is omniscient language here. Lazarus has been dead four days. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead four days. What is the totality of the meaning of four days? Christ brings out Lazarus bound after four days. And what's he bound in? Burial spice clothing, grave clothes. Just like Christ. Think that's a coincidence? There's no coincidences here with God. Are you uh, raising your hand to tell me that I'm... Are you just standing up there... No, okay. There's meaning to it. I'll hurry. Why not just bring Lazarus out of the tomb and leave the wrappings behind? Isn't that the Shroud of Turin, right? Isn't that what everybody thinks? Just leave the clothes, fold them up, pull him out, all the wrappings. There he is standing. Okay, maybe we leave a couple of pieces of clothing on him, just in case there's photographers. But that's not what he did, is it? He brought him out completely encased. How tight of a, of a covering is this, do you think? Have you ever seen it, investigated it? How good at wrapping a body are they? This is essentially a mummified body. The spices, the, think plaster of Paris, even something worse, sheetrock, mud. 
taping. Nothing's more horrible than that. How long did it take for them to chisel him out of there? Because Christ doesn't pull him out. He tells those people, get him out of there. Why does he do that? Obviously, he has the ones who put him in it get him out. Why? How's Lazarus doing while he's floating in the air out there? He can't breathe. What do we do? Got to poke a hole? Were they hitting him with a chisel? Trying to get a hole in that stuff? How did that work? Start wrecking, ruminating on it. Figure it out. Hopefully you can remember Shannon from Texas for the resting of the ark question. That's where we are finally now today. The ark of Noah on the 17th day of the seventh month, Genesis 8-4, rested, came to rest. The answer is rest. It rested. Why did God use that word? What word is he trying to make you go back and find? And I submit that Christ is the Ark of Noah. The Ark of Noah is one of the great symbols of Jesus Christ. It's made of wood. It's covered in blood. Kafar means atonement. It's covered in atonement. It's a place of refuge from the waters that envelop the earth again for the second time. So it's wise to go through the Bible and accumulate every verse passage that applies to God resting. Where do you start? I'm going to read it really fast because we've got to go because Terry has standing up and that's a problem. Let's start at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them, who's that, were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which he had God had created and made. You see all the repetition there? Uh, finished, ended, work, done, rested, done, rested, work, created and made, blessed and sanctified. Uh, Exodus 31.17 said he refreshed himself. Let's dispense with the stupid questions. Are there stupid questions? The answer is yes. There are stupid questions. Did God rest because he was exhausted, sleepy, weakened, or hungry? No. Please stop. Please say no. Look up omnipotence. So what's the meaning here? Someone said, some will say, this is establishing the model for Israel in Exodus 28. And I, I think that's true. The Sabbath is a symbol of Christ. Christ is the great Sabbath rest. The rest is, in fact, it's true that it is Christ in the creation. That's clearly true. Christ places himself in his word, being that he is the word. But what does it mean for God to rest or refresh himself? Why is this necessary? Christ ended something. He put an end to something. What did he end? Who's watching? How coherent is Adam on the great Sabbath rest day? God finished something. What did Christ finish? He finished his work. Where are we now? We're at the crucifixion, aren't we? Putting it another day away. What did the angels think was accomplished by the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest? What did they think was being done? Did they think it was a response to Satan? In other words, did they think God said, okay, we've had the lie of Satan. I'm going to do this. Drop the mic and walk off the stage. Is that what they thought? 
Did Christ rest on the 17th day of the seventh month? The ark did. How do I fit Genesis 2, 1, 3 with Genesis 8, 4? Resting, if I rest, if I'm at rest, what am I? If these are at rest, if your car is at rest, if the train is at rest, what is it? Stationary frame of reference. He stopped. Can God really stop? Is time infinitely divisible? Resting is stopping. Christ stopped. What did he stop? What was stopped? What does God stop from? I'll give you some options. These may or may not contain the answer. Did he stop redemption? That's salvation. Did he stop saving? Did he stop judgment or condemnation? Did he stop creating or making things? Did he stop blessing? Because he blesses. What does it mean when he blesses? Is it a good thing to be blessed by God? Yes, it is. What's that mean? Did he stop sanctification? Did he stop the angels? If he did, from what? What was stopped here? You have a week to figure it out. It isn't that hard either.